0: Real quick at the top here, we had some technical issues with Andrew on our internet connection, so we had to call him back on the phone so you'll hear his voice change. On with the show. Welcome to How College Works. I'm Peter Highland. I'm a professor of physics and astronomy at a small liberal arts uh, college. I've worked at large state schools that are research intensive. I've worked at highly selective schools. As postdocs, and I've worked at different small liberal arts as a professor.
1: I'm Melody Denny. I'm a professor of English. I also work at a small liberal arts college now. This is my first small liberal arts college. Um, my experience prior to this was mostly uh, four year state schools and also a Research One Institute.
2: I'm uh, Andrew Hyland. I'm a high school teacher in Northern California. And I teach students with learning disabilities, uh, math, uh, mostly 10th grade. And this is my 13th year of teaching.
0: Whoa, dude. <laughs> you put it that way, it's intense.
1: So, Peter, <laughs> why are we here?
0: <laughs> so, not just while I've been a professor, but also as a graduate student, as a postdoc, I've always had interactions with undergraduates and, of course, was an undergraduate myself at one point. And one of the things which became apparent is that, especially when I became a professor, is that undergraduates don't understand what it is I do, like, at all. (laughs) And so there's a lot of miscommunication or the way that a, a student interacts with me or requests something from me can come across as being very demanding or entitled or just wrong-headed, which I understand they don't know what I do, so they don't understand what it is that is reasonable to ask of a professor. And so I wanted to create something where I can sit down and talk with some friends, both from college and from high school, as educators and talk about what it is that we all do and how those things are different and what that means for how students interact with us. Not so much study skills or policy wonk, but really, like, what is my life like as a professor and what does that mean for how my students should approach me? Okay. Right. So that was a lot of title. (laughs) So I, so I settled on how a college works.
1: How a college works. We could
0: do how college works. Okay, just. Kidding. We can put it to a vote, Melody. Which do you prefer?
1: Probably without
0: the article. Uh, no article. M- Melody does is a rhetorician, by the way, listeners, and so she will use technical <laughs> phrases like article. article. So technical. <laughs> sure, I'm 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 happy with how college works. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. Welcome to how college works. Yay. I'm Peter Island. Uh, here with Melody Denny and Andrew Highland, my brother, in case you were wondering. <laughs> and so, why don't we start with what would you say it is you do here? Let's talk about like how we spend our days and how our jobs look to us anyway. I have three things I need to do. I need to teach classes, I need to perform service to the college, which is basically keeping it running, not just in the teaching classes, but in other respects as well. And I need to do professional development for my institution, although many, many institutions it is just straight up research, not just developing myself professionally and staying abreast of my field, but many places you need to produce new research that is published. What do you think? Does that mostly sum sound up, Melody? Is there anything that I'm missing?
1: No, that's mostly what I do. On a day-to-day basis though, I would say that I probably focus much more on my teaching mm-hmm. because I have to go to class like in 30 minutes or something. So I have to make sure I'm ready for that. But there are a lot of other housekeeping type things I have to do. Do some course proposals or email back about this committee that I'm on and those kinds of things. But by and large on a day-to-day basis, teaching is my focus
0: through?
2: Yeah, um, and you know, in the high school level, we're also concerned with teaching every single day, obviously, and uh, we get a little hour built in there to prepare for our different uh, topics we're going to do, and we always have in the back of our head, the springtime when the state tests come come up, those of us teaching core classes, math, English, uh, history, science, are thinking about how is our lesson today going to lead us to mastery when we get to those state tests, Um, and of course, there's always that weekly and, and monthly staff meetings and things that we have to just push the paperwork and do bureaucracy that's uh, it can get tedious but it's uh, sometimes productive so you know regular daily teacher grind
0: yeah I mean a lot of that sounds pretty familiar I mean we have monthly division meetings or in a, in a larger institution you'd have monthly departmental meetings I think um, monthly yeah, I I should, probably. Uh, probably so that that sounds very familiar certainly I think one thing to sort of call out is, Melanie, do you have testing that happens in the springtime other than your own (laughs) testing?
1: No, No, I
0: don't. And that's that's also true for me. In fact, that's true basically across the board for higher ed, that's college, higher ed professors, instructors, is we we are accountable. We're accountable to an accreditation body. But...
1: Love that person. we don't have
0: yeah we don't have like a yearly testing of our students to see whether they're up to snuff i am in a small department of one i, I am my department <laughs> uh, which makes my department meetings really fast but if i was in a in a department where we had a major then periodically we would need to be reviewed on the 5 or 10 year time scale that what we're doing is maintaining the quality yeah and the content, and that is done sort of much more aggregately. So who are you, Drew, who are you held accountable to?
2: Our accreditation body or whatever it's called, WASC, Western Association of Schools and Colleges, Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: they come by and do a test, a run, a review of everything for like a week or so, two weeks, something, and visit almost every classroom on campus. They just did it last year for us, and they can qualify you for uh, one year, a one-year, three a three-year, or a six-year accreditation, and then they will come back in that in that time period. So yeah, we have to main, maintain our our quality, and it's really those the state testing and the WASC uh, review are are really for the, the faculty and the and the staff. Not so. It's not like it's the students' fault for not performing. It's how are we delivering to to brand new students? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's always looking at. Is the, the way the teachers are deciding to deliver lessons, is that effective for our students and, and their learning based on this test, based on this measurement?
0: And one of the things that, that caught my ear when you said that is, is it's not the student's fault <laughs> if they don't do well. I will, I will, well, I will tell yeah. you, the general assumption is it is the student's fault if they don't do well in my class. <laughs>
2: I your, your students are your students are age of majority. Our students are, with the exception of a couple of seniors, are under 18, and, and we have a federal, you know, a state and a federal, different levels of mandates to provide compulsory education. They're not there by choice. Your, your students are, to a certain extent, self-selected and funded however they're funded, but we're getting state money and, and federal money, and we have to be that's why we're checked on is the state money and the, and the property tax money that pays for our campus is it being used effectively i'm, I'm sure you're going to tie into uh, later on about how those two different things are one of the roots of, of the stuff that you're seeing in a first-year college student having this different perception of how to interact
0: yeah absolutely i think that the reality of high, secondary ed and primary ed funding leads to a very different structure and that leads to very different ways in which students learn to interact with their instructors. And so do you need to do professional development and or research? Because I'm, I'm, I'm just going to assume, I uh, could be wrong, so, t- so tell me I'm wrong if I am, that high school instructors, teachers don't have to do research, but they, I think they do have to do a lot of professional development.
2: Right, I don't, I don't, know that anywhere is requiring somebody to do research, but there are a lot of good K-12 educators out there that are doing research and publishing, and they're fantastic. So they're, that's happening, but it's not like a, a requirement. There is a lot of professional development. We went to two or three a month this summer with with uh, almost a third of the staff at my high school was able to go, and you know, there's been a couple of years where state funding is not high enough where we can get that many people going to a training. And a lot of teachers are incentivized to do that because you can use the units to advance your salary ladder. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of, aside from keeping your credential current, you Mm -hmm. you can get paid more next year when you have more units. So,
0: So, Mm -hmm. Melly, I think you've spent more recently than I some quality time with the faculty handbook, which (laughs) often in a college or university, the faculty handbook is what lays out what a faculty member, a professor, needs to do to maintain basically good standing with the administration and continue their career, at least up until tenure, and then things change a fair amount. We don't get paid more for professional development, do we? No,
1: no, no, (laughs) not at (laughs) all. It would be nice, it would be nice. Yeah, because, I mean, they encourage you to do it, and you have to write up a summary of the types of things that you've done, and you need a plan, there's no incentive attached to that other than just for knowledge's sake.
0: True. Or if, if you're going to lump professional development with research together, it's, it's merely a requirement to, to keep your job. Keep doing that professional development, Drew, because I want you to get paid a lot so that you can give some of that my way. But, uh, yeah, we we don't get paid more <laughs> well, by doing more research or professional development.
2: Yeah, I mean, and there, we could talk about numbers if somebody wanted to be a policy wonk but you know a starting first year teacher salary is quite low relatively and at this point i it's not like I get paid more because I'm all the way to the top of my ladder for as far as continuing education due to my master's degree and my units and everything so I'm doing professional development this summer just to get better at, at teaching mm-hmm. you know the, the younger the first year second year third year teachers are going to be able to move up and see a little bump but after Basically, if you have a master's degree, in, in most districts in my area, you've topped out on your salary scale, and then you're, mm-hmm. then you're paid based on, uh, you know, a union negotiated years in, in the saddle, mm. as it were. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in the trenches, I think we should say. So let's bring this uh, back a little bit more to our day-to-day. So I'll talk a little bit about yeah. how I spend my day and then see how that is similar or different. Today is actually a pretty general day for me. I get in around 8.30, I have a class at 9.00, I have an hour break in which I usually prepare for my next class, then I have a class at 11.00, I have a two hour break in which I eat lunch and prepare for my next class, which happens to be a two hour long class, physics, lecture and lab combined into a single unit. And that finishes up at four and then Ostensibly, I am free to do whatever I want since I am I am salaried, which means that I get paid a certain amount per year and at that level the hours I work or don't work don't figure into it. I get paid a certain amount per year, I am elected to receive that dispensation either over nine months during the school year or or over 12 months. And then so I could, in theory, show up for those four hours on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and not do anything, sit like a bump on a log for every hour that is not class hours, and I would still get paid for that year. I'm pretty sure my contract would not be renewed after that because that leaves me no time for grading or course prep, which would make sure that my classes are actually good. And so I spend a fair amount of time during my day preparing for my next class, making sure that I know what the reading has said, my labs are prepared, making sure my slides, I know what I'm saying. And then a lot of my time outside of that is spent grading. Grading homeworks, grading papers, grading labs. I had a friend who, who said, you know, I teach for free. They pay me to grade, and that is really a lot of what it feels like, is you know, getting that turnaround on that, on that grading is a big deal. And then in sort of the interstitial times, <clears throat> when I'm not prepping or grading or teaching, I'm spending some time looking at a professional development, where I want to go, can I go to a conference, can I work on a little, a little bit of research. I'm also spending time working on committees, doing generally called committee work, where I go to committee meeting, help make decisions for that committee, and pass that information on to wherever it needs to pass on to. I'm imagining, Melody, yours is very similar to that.
1: Yeah, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, um, is a lower task-based day for me. I only teach one class, and so it's at 2 o'clock, so <laughs> that leaves the morning just open for all kinds of possibilities. So I came in around 9, and my possibilities included... <laughs> responding to emails um, about a committee that I've been working on uh, taking care of some paperwork for a minor that I'm proposing and then prepping for my two o'clock class and so I was able to get all my slides together and read for that but then I started prepping for tomorrow's classes as well so that's what I did right before class and then I taught and then right after class and now we're here so (laughs) I try to get as much work done ahead of time as I can I'm not sure why because I never really use that time for YouTubing or. (laughs) it's usually just other work fills the day
0: there's plenty of work to be done so Drew how is your sort of daily flow compared with Melody and I's?
3: well my regular day is start school um, I usually get get to school a little bit early you know 730 and Depending on the schedule that year, you know, it switches around. this year, I have prep in the morning where I get myself ready for classes and maybe make phone calls to parents and emails and what have you. And then I have four classes right in a row. Well, not right in a row. I have a class and then we have lunch and then I have two more classes and whatever. but uh, and I'm teaching all math this year, and I have to run around to different classrooms on campus because that's how my how my schedule works this year. so, and I think that's pretty typical setup for a lot of teachers is not necessarily the moving classrooms, but having to prep at some point, getting all your lesson planning ready to go, and then seeing students an hour at a time. And most of my math department offers up time at lunch and time after school for kids to come in and retake a quiz or study for the next test or you know turn in late assignments or whatever it is. I usually have Mondays where I stay late. And have kids come in and you know work with me right after school. I don't know. That's our usual uh, day. Most of the day is spent with teaching, and then once a week we have a shortened day where we spend the extra like hour and a half doing a department meeting. We usually going to our department. Sometimes that turns into a a different kind of grade level meeting or something depending on our requirements for the month. So yeah, I think probably a little more, a little bit more of our time is dictated by other people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm. Melody, you seem one un- <laughs> Your reaction... I <laughs> just gave me this grimace.
1: There were a couple of things in that narrative that struck me as very different from mine. <laughs> one, 7.30 in the morning. and There are some people who come in early and teach 8 o'clock classes, but we're in control of that most of the time. And so I don't like to do that, so I don't have to. And then calling parents. Oh, I don't know. I don't do that. <laughs> and I don't know why you would have to, but that's... I mean, I'm sure you have reasons. And then four classes or so back-to-back, yee. Uh, <laughs>
0: so, so, I mean, for example, Melody, how many classes do you teach
1: Well, this a semester? Usually four. Four yeah. is considered a full load. Um, so I try to break that up into two Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes and two Tuesday, Thursday classes. Yeah. And I try my best not to teach back-to-back.
0: And how about you, Drew? How, did, how many classes? You're teaching four classes. Is that every, oh, every yeah. single day?
3: This year, I'm, you know, I teach four because I'm a, a special education teacher, and I get, uh, I get an extra hour of prep to test students for special
0: education. But I, that's, what, um, what our but listeners I cannot know. see is, is, is my look of pain on my face at the thought of teaching five classes. So a standard yeah. high school teacher would teach five classes every day?
3: Well, I mean, yeah, I think a regular high school teacher would come in, have one prep, and teach five classes, but they're not necessarily five different. They might be yeah. three different yeah. preps but five hours of them. So you would have a class of 32 kids doing Algebra one, and then a class of 32 kids doing Geometry, and then another class of Algebra one, and then another class of Geometry, and then finally you get your pre-calculus kids, or something like that. You know, that would be kind of a generic yeah.
0: math lineup. Oh, You've missed the looks of horror on our face and the thought of teaching five classes with 32 students in them. It, it, oh yeah. my lord. Oh. Yeah. It's just, I, I think I'm getting a cold sweat just, just even thinking about it.
1: Well, but even if it's like not, I mean if it's not five different preps, I, one semester I taught three sections of 102, which is the research writing class, on the same day. And it was one at 10, one at 11, and one at two. And by that last time I taught it, I was like, did I say this? I was so confused and I was so tired at the end of that day And so I can't imagine, I mean, even if it's at the same prep, it's still not any cognitively less taxing.
3: Yeah, that's true. I I agreed. I think most high school teachers would agree with you. I bet.
1: And 32 students, uh, is that typical also for like a writing class? Absolutely,
3: yeah.
0: You know, (laughs) high school
3: principals are looking at bodies in chairs. Like they have to find a spot for every student to be every hour so that there's not like wondering kids. We have 1,900 students on my campus right this year. And they all have to be somewhere. They get five minutes to pass uh, to the next class, and then they better, they better have their bottom in a chair, or else there's going to be problems. <laughs> so everybody is sitting somewhere every hour of the day. Yeah. And there's smarter people than me that know the history back to 1930 when we had unemployment of adults, so we kicked the kids out of the factory. This is why we have compulsory education.
0: Ho- hooray. I'm feeling super pampered. I know. But I did spend <laughs> six years getting a Ph.D., I did put in some work. I don't know, thirty-two. I guess one question is: so if I had thirty-two students in a in a class, I have to grade those students because I'm a small liberal arts, and there are not graduate students here at a a big R one or research-intensive. We'll use those terms interchangeably. Think of your big state schools like UT Austin, University of Wisconsin Mm -hmm. Madison. Ohio State. uh, What is the wrong
1: OSU? Oklahoma
0: State. (laughs) Okay, Oklahoma State. These big places, there are a lot of graduate students, and and often those graduate students are performing a really valuable and important service, which is grading all of the stuff that comes in. In the sciences, you know, you have these discussion sections where the actual contact time with the student and instructor is between the student and the TA and that TA also grades the work, and the professor often in those situations for science classes are not grading that work. I think in the humanities, it usually ends up a little bit differently.
1: Yeah, I was the teacher or instructor of record, and Mm -hmm. so we did all the grading and we weren't, we didn't have an, like we weren't an assistant, we were the instructor. But even then, our classes are capped, and so I've been at one place where they were capped at 19, which was, you know, good. Another place where they're capped at 25, which is about the national average. Mm-hmm. But 32 makes me want to, like, die on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking about 32 essays coming in at one time, and that's if I taught one section of that class. If I taught, oh, heaven forbid, three sections of that class, and I in It's
0: 96. Home.
1: Yeah, I, I can do some math. <laughs>
0: So I didn't mean to. Pamper. I was gonna
1: say about a hundred. <laughs> that works. Yeah, but works. the grading on that just sounds completely overwhelming.
0: Yeah, and I think maybe one of the things that I hope anyone listening to this takes away is not that we are pampered and entitled as faculty. It's that high school teachers are super overworked. Like so, you know, <laughs> since I know free, melody. Free. Yes, yes, yes. Dear high school teachers, We're sorry. you are awesome and superhuman and I hope to never have to do what you do in my life. The... It's not that bad, really. <laughs> okay,
1: good.
0: That's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that.
3: So, I guess I, guess I have to ask from oh. a high school perspective, like, uh, as a college student, I took uh, lecture hall courses with 350 kids and I'm at a state school. Like, nobody has those? Or, you said national average is 25 students in a college class?
1: Oh, the national average for a composition class so oh. for a writing class that's the national average which yeah. is kind of high as you think of like community college instructors who are teaching four or five sections of the same class and they're getting you know 100 125 essays at a go so like for quality feedback in terms of composition that's a problem but like i don't know about the national average in terms of other classes. I'm i mean, sorry. it also
0: depends on how you split it oh, up.
3: question that, that we're giving quality feedback, but that's a different podcast.
1: Uh, <laughs> I can't even, yeah. Supposed quality feedback. Okay, yeah. save for another time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, it, in, in terms of science, it depends on how you count the class, because there's often, you sign up for a, a different section, and that section sets your discussion section and or lab times. But everybody has the same lecture time mm-hmm. and so the class might have 32 students in it. I don't know if that counts as a single class. They all go to no. the same lecture three times a week and they come to my discussion section two times a week and my lab once a week. And so they're getting oh, five, eight contact hours. But three of those are with the professors.
3: No, I, I understand. That makes a little bit more sense. I mean, it, it, yes, our high school students or high school teachers have uh, about 170 contacts, and if we get over that, we get paid more until they can bump it down. We get paid more per day until the school is able to level classes out, if you're over number of students. But in general, a college course of, let's say, Spanish, one semester is going to cover a year's worth of high school topic.
0: Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I'm,
3: I'm generalizing, and you're going to meet like half the hours we is we meet one hour a day in general. Even if you're on block schedule, you're gonna meet essentially five hours a week for your high school yeah. course. So you guys are covering more material in a little bit less time and giving quality feedback and all of that. And we're covering less material a slightly more slowly. That's kind of how we're able to squeeze a little bit more quality feedback into this, what looks like a huge number of people coming through. And it is, it's a lot of people coming through with different ability levels and what have you.
0: Right, but yeah, that's a good point. As a general piece of advice, if you plan to take science classes in college, take them in high school first. A year of physics in high school may actually cover the same topics, but we're going to go in a whole lot more depth in was expected in a, in a science class. So, right, yeah, it's in, in, in terms of the kinds of feedback. And that feeds into one of the things that I was thinking about is that, as I was saying, like I know Melody and we've talked about feedback she gives – you know, in her classes, one of them, they have an annotated bibliography where you take your work cited or what's going to be that, and you read that yeah. source and you, you put notes on what's in that, in that source, in that document, in that paper or, or article or whatever it is. And for her students, she reads all the sources. And so, and not just like the little quick blurb of like, here's what we're going to say, but like reads the source. And so when she goes in and grades that annotated bibliography, it's not, yeah, that sounds like what this title says. I read the abstract and this matches the abstract. It's like, no, like you read the abstract and not actually the paper because what you just wrote down here doesn't match your source. You need to go back and read the source. So like the English professors here are reading hundreds of pages of source material before they even get to talking about your writing. So they will know as much about what you're writing as you do so they can actually critique your writing and your argument and the structure of your paper and not give you a superficial one. When Melanie and I are pulling, not that anyone can see us, (laughs) like (laughs) giving these like faces of like, oh my God. I can't imagine. You know, like part of it is like I cannot imagine reading ten sources for a hundred students. Right. And yeah. Then, so
3: that that is a, described perfectly beautiful high quality feedback that I don't think that that happens in every classroom in every hour. I'm not going to say it doesn't happen because we have some really good teachers that come in early and stay late and do a lot of awesome stuff. Yeah. I don't. I don't know that that level is happening at every <laughs> at every moment. <clears throat>
1: I don't know that it happens at every moment here either, Um, and I'm not sure that even all of the people who are reading annotated bibliographies do that, but that's personally what I do, and that's kind of the standard that I set up. But the students seem surprised. They start talking to each other, oh my gosh, she actually read the articles that I was writing about, and I'm like, well, yeah. How, How else am I gonna know?
3: The ninth graders, when they appear to us in high school, are often used to, I filled in the blank and I turned the paper, like the, all the holes are filled on the worksheet. So
0: where's my A? Oh,
1: ew. So we you're, you guys
0: are already doing some pretty heavy lifting, even to get to the point where we see them, where it's, I worked really hard. <laughs> where's my A? Yeah. Not just I filled in the bubbles, but no, I spent a lot of time on this. I would like an A now, please. The discussion that
3: we've been doing in our professional development this summer at my campus, anyway, and for the last couple years in my department, has really been about giving grades that are not, oh, effort or attendance or what have you, but more on, are you mastering the skills? And it's changing the conversation with parents, especially, and with students about, are you doing A-level work? That's what an A grade in this class is. Not, did you chase all the points and get 97 points instead of 96? but Did you master quadratics? Okay, now you can have an A in
1: quadratics. There's definitely some of that in our classes, too. Mm -hmm. Well, there's also this, well, I was an A student in high school, and I have to say stuff like, well, you might not be an A student in college, which Mm -hmm. is not very nice, but it might be the truth.
0: Melody, I was an A student in high school.
1: Were you an A student in college? I
0: got a C in freshman composition first semester of college. (laughs) It was so brutal, it was so hard. It was a real big change for me. I'm actually super happy that it happened first semester and that it kind of like popped that bubble and then it was like, I don't care about grades anymore. I mean, I did really well in my major. And after that, I did well in my other classes. But it was difficult. It was difficult to, to figure out, like, what is my professor trying to get me to do? And there were times when... You know, I'm like, I'm getting C's on this stuff. All right, I'm going to start this one when it's assigned. So I'm going to spend a full week writing this thing. I'm going to go in and talk to them. I'm going to get feedback. I'm going to revise twice. You know what I got on that paper? A B minus? A C. (laughs) It
2: was. (laughs) Something for a little No, it was
3: so bad. You had what I think might be a typical experience. You know, you were an atypical student and went to an atypical university, though. But I think it's a typical experience. Oh, yeah. If you have time on your podcast, I'll share a story from my friend who's the AP art teacher. Mm. He had his students, they have to get just like a sketchbook. And one of the first assignments was get a pen and empty the pen in this sketchbook. Every page has to have a mark on it, and the pen has to be empty. And the way he checked the course was when they came in after a week, he had them draw with the pen on his arm. And if it left any ink, they had to go back and keep going. And uh, one of my colleagues who were at lunch was saying, You know, why did you have them do that? What's the point? And he said, well, they've got to burst the bubble. Otherwise, they're going to have this perfectly beautiful brand-new sketchbook and never touch it because they're perfectionists and they don't want to, you know, mess it up. So they have to get over that. And now they can start doing art.
0: Yeah, yeah, that sounds a lot of like just that burst that I'm in a student bubble. I've had students who have come in, and they've been on the verge of tears, you know, oh, they actually she, cry
1: at me. They try
0: not to cry at me, <laughs> because I mean, she was going to get a, a B in my class. She was having a real hard time balancing this kind of destruction of her sense of self versus like knowing that she bombed that exam. <laughs> like there was no ifs ands or buts, and I gave her everything I could to like help her understand it. It was just sort of like going back and forth between. This is not who I am, but this is what yeah. this was what you just did. I think,
3: I think what you guys are talking about is the switch from grading um, effort yeah. and do I like the student to people grade? That? You know what we're talking about more, which is mastery of concepts, mastery of skills, and depersonalize it so that you're a great student. You haven't mastered this yet and we need to keep working on it. And that's a conversation that I've been having in my department for five years or something. I've been reading about it longer than that. So there is a, a high school level conversation about how do we approach the conversation of grades with students and parents. because A lot of the high achieving guys students are looking after points and they're looking at the grade book. Nowadays, our grade books are online. They can check them right there on their phone. Mom and dad text them, like, why didn't you get 100? Why Why'd you get 97? Mm. What can you go ask the teacher for extra credit? How about be good at the skill, and then you can earn the full point? I mean, because so much of the conversation is about points, and how can I get the next point versus how can I be a master at the skills of math or an mm. excellent writer, right. an excellent writer to where any teacher in the school I can write to rather than I can write to Mr. Highland. And I can write to his essay specifications, and I can take my junior year writing class, and suddenly I've got to learn a new mode and I'm sunk. Changing this this conversation about grades has been a slow process in my daily, yearly experience, and I think you guys are seeing
1: it too. Yeah. Definitely. There's point grubbers.
0: Yeah. As an (laughs) aside, by the way, any students listening
1: don't grub for points. We
0: hate that. It's not a good look but, on anybody.
3: But guess who trains them up from eighth grade on is their parents. There's parents that are asking about how can they get their kid into the accelerated math class in seventh grade because, depending on the size of the district and the class or whatever, if they get into the right math class in seventh grade, that is the cohort that is in the AP calculus class in twelfth grade, and those are the guys that are going to Stanford and Berkeley and not you know Solano Community College. So... Yeah, but their their parents are the ones that have this importance on education. It's not just their parents, but them, too, have, have learned it, that points are important and full points is important, and the system is set up in a lot of places to just say, oh, turn in an extra page and get some more points.
0: So that's it for this episode of How College Works. Uh, we're going to have a whole lot more to talk about, so we can dive into a little bit more of these, certainly how schools, colleges, universities versus high schools are funded and how that leads to how students are taught and how they interact with their instructors. We can talk about uh, student entitlement. Uh, Melanie and I have certainly had the conversation that this is, that word feels like the air we breathe when faculty are talking to faculty. And I think it would be great to talk about what that looks like to us or what we mean when we say that and maybe where that's coming from, from the high school level. If you would like to let us know what you would like us to talk about, if you have a particular question, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Hyland. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-H-Y-L-A-N-D.
3: I'm at Andrew Hyland. With no
1: spaces. Andrew H-Y-L-A-N-D. Oh, my gosh. Your guys' is like, Twitter handles are so professional. That's why I can't say mine. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So please uh, let us know what you would like us to talk about. Certainly high school and college size of things, uh, and we will get it in here. We will talk to you next time.
3: Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.